You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Mark, good afternoon. It is Wednesday, the 28th, October 28th, almost Halloween. And we are joined today by three of our friends and colleagues. We have Patrick Martin from our Chicago office, who splits his time between Chicago and Washington, D.C., and worked in the Obama administration and in in the Senate for Senator Evan Bayh. Uh, We have Alex Campo, who is on our D.C. team. Uh, Alex leads our health policy practice and um, has worked in the the House, the Senate, and and this White House on all things health care, most recently on the Domestic Policy Council staff. And then Caitlin Martin, a frequent Guest joins us as well. She's Caitlin's really a regular. Mark. Caitlin's I mean, a regular, but she's a um, semi-regular. I like the odds. Usually, it's either two or three to one. Like last Sunday, I have Patrick today, so we're, I like our chances at three to two. Patrick, okay, me too. Yeah. So today we're talking about Biden 1.0, or as Mark likes to say, Obama 3.0. Um, well, you got to include the hyphen, Obama Biden 3.0. Okay, please. Fine. The uh, this past weekend we talked about what a second Trump term would look like, and now we're going to talk about what a Biden Harris term would would look like. But first, let's size up the race like we did the other day. Patrick, let me start with you. What do you make of the state of the race? We've been hearing all sorts of conflicting things as we talk to people around the country this week. Absolutely. Well, it's it's certainly, you know, getting down to the wire here as we enter the last week, I would point out a couple different things as we sort of take a step back and look at where things stand six days out. You know, things certainly look good for Vice President Biden. Uh, the polling and a lot of the indicators show that he is in a very strong position uh, to win the election on Tuesday. Um You know, the swing states uh, appear to be a little tighter than his overall national polling lead. Um, But all things considered, things look good. And you can tell that he thinks things look good based on where he's traveling to, what his schedule looks like uh, in these final days of the campaign. And I think the biggest advantages he has going for him right now, uh, the first is just that he is not Hillary Clinton. And a lot of the things that worked for President Trump in 2016 have just not been able to to be effective this time around. And the second uh, factor is that, you know, Donald Trump was very successful running as an insurgent anti-establishment challenger, um, but running as an incumbent in a very difficult global pandemic uh, with a subsequent recession has proved to to be a major challenge for him. And, uh, you know, political history has shown us that uh, the incumbents who fare the best are able to make the election a choice uh, instead of a referendum. Donald Trump has not been able to do that, uh, quite frankly, because he can never make anything about anyone other than himself. And that ultimately will will likely prove to be uh, what what does him in. But I would point out uh, one thing uh, as the Trump people are looking and assessing the race on their side. 
the same path that was available to them four years ago, based on the polling, theoretically could be available to them this time. And I think they're banking on running the table again. Um, the other thing I would point out is that uh, the last two incumbent presidents who have not been reelected suffered from both international crisis and domestic crisis, both, uh, you're not, a, not an or. Um, and also suffered very intense challenges from within their own party uh, from someone else seeking the nomination, causing a, a lot of problems before they were even renominated. Donald Trump's base is firmly behind him in a way that, frankly, I don't know a base has, has ever been up behind a presidential candidate uh, in my lifetime and, and probably my parents' lifetime. And I think his supporters and his uh team is banking on that, getting him over the finish line. But, so, but I like Biden's odds. Yeah. Well, you and I talked yesterday to a couple of deep Trump insiders who, I mean, one told us that um, they're pulling their money out of Florida because they feel so good about Florida. Another told us that, um, yeah, we all know it, that's not true, by the way. Well, but that's what I was going to say. They're, you know, depend, <laughs> you just get diametrically opposite things from both sides. Like you hear that and then you hear that he's pulling his money out because he doesn't have enough money and he needs, I, I don't know. Donald Trump may win Florida. I think he probably will actually. I think North Carolina will be where where the 2016 path fails him. But, but he did not pull his money out of Florida because he is so confident that he has it wrapped up. He pulled his money out because he didn't have any money to put in. And I would just add to the, to the one thing that, that Patrick said, Howard, uh, you and I on this podcast in March, in April and, and May and June and July, for that matter, in talking about this election, said that uh, it, when we when we see where the coronavirus uh, crisis is in the country on Halloween, we'll know who's going to win the election. And here we are. Uh, we know what the crisis is going to look like on Halloween in all of two days. Sadly, tragically, it is going very badly, going very hard the wrong way. And I think in it, Beyond anything else, that is what is accounting for the kind of numbers that you're seeing. A, a poll this morning in Wisconsin, a reputable poll, and yes, the polls can be wrong. It shows that in a state that Trump won last time around, he is 17 points down. Now, maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's wrong by half. So maybe he's only nine points down. That is virus. That is that is the coronavirus crisis in Wisconsin. And that is not changing, sadly, again, is not changing between now and Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, look, we'll see what happens. Um, you've got some of the some of the Republican Senate candidates putting some distance between themselves and, and the president, which isn't a great sign for, for the president. Um, but I don't know. He's, I mean, he definitely, there's a path um, and it doesn't have to go through Wisconsin. Um, it doesn't have to go through Michigan. It, it most definitely has to go through Pennsylvania and it seems like that's where the candidates are spending a lot of their time, both on both sides. 
you know, I don't read a lot into Biden going to Georgia because I remember talking about Hillary going to Arizona, yeah. which was stupid. Yep. And and so, you know, there politics is full of stories about candidates going places they shouldn't have gone thinking they could do something they shouldn't have done. I know better O'Rourke is like on fire over trying to get Biden down to Texas. Well, he doesn't need to win Texas. He needs to win Pennsylvania. And I, I don't know. Lots, well, lots of conflicting signals. The only reason that you think it's going so well for Biden that we all think, well, I, I can't say we all, but that I think it's, I'll speak of myself. The only reason I think it's going well for Biden is, is the polls. And the polls were wrong last time. And so I, I, you have to, it, it would, we have to wait and see. I'll well, just two things on that. If I may quickly one, the, the magnitude of the polling error would have to be much greater than last time for them to be wrong again. Actually, but, no, Mark, because the also, battleground state polls are basically the same. No, no. The, Hillary's lead in the battleground states had collapsed by now. Biden's is either holding or in some like Wisconsin, like Michigan, is increasing, but also the other phenomenon, of course, Howard, and and it's reading tea leaves, which is like reading the polls. But the fact that 70 million Americans have already voted means to to me that uh, the enthusiasm gap that was very real between Trump and Biden six months ago and was yeah. ultimately what killed the Clinton campaign four years ago. There is no enthusiasm gap. Yeah. And I would add, Mark, to what Howard said. Uh, I don't think the only thing that Biden supporters are banking on is the polls. I think they're also banking on the fact that things are a complete and total mess right now. And for any other incumbent, that would be the, the nail in the coffin. The only hope anyone's holding out on the Trump side is that Trump defied the odds last time and he'll do it again this time. But take the candidates' names out of it. I mean, incumbents are held responsible and the country is a disaster with this pandemic. But Patrick, when was the last time the country fired a wartime president? They never have. Yeah, I don't know if people well, that, view this. The, and also on your point about Florida, that's the one battleground where even the polls, which are probably wrong on most things, have Trump up ahead of Biden. Forget the quiet Trump voter and what you have to add there. He's up in Florida today. Real clear politics right now. And according to 538 to Nate Silver, if Trump wins Florida, Biden's odds of winning the election go way down. Yeah, and the wartime analogy, I would just say, I mean, Lyndon Johnson was overseeing a disaster in Vietnam and just decided not to run again. Trump's ego is obviously too big to ever do that, but that's what the country feels like right now. It's a complete mess and he's an incumbent and he's gonna be held responsible. And that's, that's the reality of where I think things are going on Tuesday. Well, we shall see. Um, let's pivot now to what first Biden term would would look like. Let's start. Let's start here. A bunch of us, Mark, Alex, um, and I, and and Patrick, maybe you as well, have been through presidential transitions. 
um, the actual act of transitioning. And Alex, Alex and I have been, and, and Patrick on the inside, Mark, you've been on a presidential transition team during, during Obama, uh, Biden in, in 08. So let's, let's talk about how it would actually work. And um, Mark, why don't you start it? Well, let's talk about how it worked, Howard, in 2008, uh, when we transitioned in a crisis from Republican uh, rule to a, a Democratic administration. Notice there, how he said that Republican rule <laughs> to a Democratic administration. It was advisedly said. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't think this is going to look like that in 2008. And you were very deeply part of it uh, at, at Treasury. I, I was less deeply a part of it from the transition uh, team side. But there was tremendous cooperation. The country was in crisis. Obama had won. And there was a, a patriotic cooperation from the uh, top uh, all the way down in, in the departments and agencies as a new team came, came to town. I don't know that we can foresee the sort of uh, cooperation in a uh, Biden to a uh, Trump to Biden uh, transition. And and that is going to make this a transition like no other. I think Alex would uh, agree that there was cooperation in 2016 from the outgoing Obama ad administration as well. What is unique what is different? Well, let's let's see whether Alex agrees with that or not. Well, I, I've only been involved so far with one transition. Um, I can tell you the halls of the EEOB when people got there were kind of ransacked, though. Furniture wasn't in offices, refrigerators, <laughs> terribly disgusting. Like, I don't know. Hopefully that's that wasn't, you know, unfriendly play, but it certainly didn't feel smooth. I didn't get to talk to anyone leaving the administration, even though... That's supposed. That's what's supposed to happen a lot of times in the transition. Howard, could we talk about the physical act to, to take it a step back to the physical act of transition? Because I think some of our listeners might find that really interesting. That on election night there will be someone, uh, probably Ted Kaufman or one of the co-chairs, who is not present at any election party or you know. And obviously that'll be a little different because of COVID this year. But in 2008 for Obama, that person, the executive director of the transition was Chris Liu, who had been President Obama's legislative director and acting chief of staff. And Chris tells the story uh, all the time about how he was in Washington. He wasn't in Chicago for that big, wonderful celebration in, in Grant Park. Uh, he was in D.C., signing the official paperwork and receiving the keys to the official transition office. It's an actual sort of process that takes place uh, that's that's really kind of amazing and only a few people ever really witness. Um, but it takes place outside of all the balloons and celebration uh, that can happen on election night. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been through a couple on the on the inside um, at the agency level, and it is uh, they've been different. And I mean, Mark, when in 08, when the world was going crazy, it was kind of a tale of two worlds because on the one hand, uh, 
Obama was talking twice a day, every day to Hank Paulson throughout the election um, and, and throughout the transition. But as you know, Mark, as soon as as soon as they won, uh, Rahm Emanuel said, we're not going to own the crisis until we actually own the crisis. And they were actually very disengaged at a working level. Um, I would not call, I would not call it smooth. Um, at the end of the day, <laughs> I got a literal, a call literally on Christmas Eve to spend Christmas day hunkered down in an office with 10. It was me in an office with 10 Obama people helping them understand what we built at treasury and, and how they were going to take it over and, and talking through, like they had these ideas of distancing themselves from what we built from, from the tarp apparatus and the fact that they were going to kind of push it off and, and make spin it out as its own thing. And I was, I said, you, you know, you're, that's a pipe dream. You know, you, you're going to own this on day one, you're going to own it. And they, that was Christmas. That was Christmas. Right. You know, right. less than a month before yeah. taking office. And then they got, then they got serious and dug in and look, and, and they kept uh, several of us, um, over into the Obama administration, which I'm proud to have, to have worked in. Um, uh, but it was, uh, you know, these things, they're, they're difficult. They're, they're difficult. difficult. They're difficult. One, they're inherently difficult. difficult. One, one difference from 2008 and 2016, both, if there is a Biden-Harris uh, transition, one difference that I think could make a big difference difference is that this will be the most experienced incoming administration in a long, long time, maybe ever. And that is uh, very different, of course, than 2008 and, and 2016. 2008, uh, uh, President-elect Obama had been in Washington for two years. And came to town with a lot of uh, Patrick's friends from Chicago who had never been in Washington. Mark, you you must be forgetting about the fact that um, President Bush was the son of another president. I no, mean, no, it I'm was, saying you have to go back to 2000 to to see not that, that long. <laughs> and 2016, for some of the folks on this call, that goes back a ways. And in, in 2016, of course, Trump came in as uh, as an outsider. Th this is well, going. Mark, that's to be because the other people joining on this us on this call were like eight years old back right. in <laughs> that, that, 2000. So I guess you're right. I was trying to be respectful of everyone on the call, but but I think that will make a difference. The there. This is why I call the uh, transition Obama Biden 3.0. You, you can see from the campaign and from the transition, there are going to be people coming into this Biden administration who have done this before. And I think that will make it a, a maybe less difficult transition than it, than it would otherwise be. That experience, I think, will prove valuable. Alex, what do you think? 
You look like you want to say something. I mean, to some extent, I agree with you. The president came in not as a politician, as a businessman. And so a lot of his staff, both at the White House and throughout the agencies, weren't people who had done that before. But, you know, I've only I only have only worked in the healthcare arena, so I only know the capabilities of the healthcare staff, but some of the smartest people I've ever met in healthcare policy worked in and still work in this administration. They may, some of them did work in the Bush administration too. Some of them came in with other sorts of technical backgrounds, not from working in the White House or at OMB or at HHS, but they were still very bright. Does it help to know all the levers of government and how to make the system work and what the process is? Definitely. And so in that way, yeah, if it's a Biden staff's third time doing this, then they will they will have a leg up on those technical and procedural methods of getting stuff done. That helps. Maybe the third time will be will be the charm, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and but but let's uh Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Is this Obama Biden, um, you know, three or is it Biden Harris one Which you know, you keep saying that, Mark. But well, no, it's of course Biden Harris one The three point is on the transition point that there yeah. will be experience coming back into government. It is, of course, Biden-Harris 1.0, and you're going to see some people coming into this administration who have uh, who have never served in the executive branch before. It's the team of rivals or the Avengers, I think, is uh, the better name for it. But but I think you're going to see a lot of the folks who ran against Joe Biden coming into this administration and to a uh, woman and man, they are not folks who have served in the executive uh, branch before. But you are inevitably going to see a lot of people from the Obama administration just because there was only four years in between, you know, President Obama's two terms and potentially uh, Vice President Biden's first term. So you can kind of think of it as like Reagan had two terms and then President George H.W. Bush got elected. It would be like if Jane Fonda got elected president for four years in between those two (laughs) and the country went insane for a little bit and then kind of reset itself. I'm not sure what to do with that. Patrick. Well, I'm going to get you off the hook by asking Patrick. Let's talk, Patrick. Uh, You and I have had this conversation, but let's share it with uh, our our listeners. Um, Who are some of the people that we might see in a Biden-Harris administration? uh, And and which of them did we already see uh, campaigning against Biden and Harris in 2020? Yeah, I think you're going to see some of the other people who ran in 2020 in the Democratic primary who became sort of prominent voices uh, within the party take on major roles. Um, some ran, some were just con- you know considered or speculated for, for vice president. Um, so I, I would put in that category a, a Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think even Bernie Sanders. Howard consideration. can't wait to address uh, <clears throat> Senator Warren as Secretary Warren. Well, well, I'm just going to jump in and, <laughs> and and say and point out point out that both Vermont and Massachusetts have Republican governors. So it depends what the majority in the Senate is if the Democrats mm-hmm. take the Senate. Let's assume Very true. for the sake of discussion whether either 
one of them is is appointable to anything correct because it could obviously they're not going to toy with the balance of power in the senate yeah so just one of those factoids that you know you've really got to look at the, the the big picture you do. And if you want to give up a U.S. Senate seat, I mean, the cabinet can be a phenomenal place for mayors of large cities, governors of small states looking to continue their political careers in Washington. I mean, it was a big uh, step up for, for Kathleen Sebelius when she became HHS secretary at a time when healthcare reform was going to be the central issue, uh, you know, for the Democratic uh, administration. But for some U.S. senators, it's, you know, it's probably better to just stay put. Um, and then you're also going to see, you know, who he surrounds himself with. A lot of familiar faces from the Obama-Biden administration and from Joe Biden's very long career in Washington. And, and those are the people that, that everyone knows about, the Steve Rochettes, uh, the Mike Donnellans, the Ron Klains, um, people that he trusts and is very close with and will want uh, around him as he, as he begins his term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they will be, in my opinion, they will be the, they will be the kind of special counselors to, to the president. They'll be in the white house. I mean, maybe Ron Klain will be the chief of staff or, or something, but I think he, you know, that's a, it's a moderate, group in the overall scheme of Washington. I think it's his trusted kind of kitchen cabinet. Um, I think he puts them inside the White House and then at the agency level, make some of the appointments he's got to make to pay people back for their support in the primaries. Yeah, I think HHS is going to be a significant appointment because health care is obviously going to be very high on uh, a Biden-Harris agenda. And I know, Alex, you and uh, Patrick and I have talked a little bit about some of those names. Some of the names are uh, are mainstream, I'll say. Uh, Bob Casey, for example, uh, where we have a Democratic governor and a Casey Senate seat would uh, be filled by uh, a Tom Wolf appointee. Some of the other names are not so mainstream, though. And maybe Patrick or Alex, you want, you could share a few of those. And, and then a AOC will be Secretary of Energy. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you say that, Howard, because I would point out that. You know, sometimes politicians and leaders are unaware of how the people they surround themselves with look to the outside world. Joe Biden is keenly aware that he is a lot older and whiter than the Democratic Party has become. And I think he will do uh, his very best to surround himself, both in the cabinet and the White House, with people who look like the rest of America. And I think I, I just I trust that that's what he's going to do. So yeah, I think Kate, AOC will get appointed so she doesn't primary Chuck Schumer. Yeah. <laughs> Keep her busy. Yeah. So Caitlin and Alex, what what do you see? Let's assume Biden wins. Let's assume that the Senate flips. How do you see Republicans positioning themselves in that kind of Washington? And and what do you think? What what role is there to, for Republicans to play in a in a unified Democratic government? Caitlin, start with you. Well, if 
the Senate flips to Democratic control, which I still am not entirely convinced is going to happen, um, it will be by a very slim margin. And it will make senators, our moder- Democratic moderate senators like Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, and even a potential Mark Kelly, if he does win that Arizona race, they're, they're both three very moderate senators. And you're going to have to, Democrats, in order to, to get things done without reaching across the aisle and trying to do it in a bipartisan way, are going to have to really hold the line on some of those more moderate members. I think a Republican, you know, a slim Republican minority in the Senate still has a very significant role to play because of the way the Senate rules are set up. If Democrats eliminate the filibuster, which we know is on the table and, you know, especially um, this week continues to be making headlines, the threat that Chuck Schumer wants to blow up the Senate rules and eliminate the filibuster. I still think that they're going to have to build consensus and 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 bridge the gap on several issues, um, whether it comes to, obviously, Alex can talk a bit more about health care reform, but they're going to need re- Republicans in the Senate to get behind several things in order to the majority is just going to be too thin if Democrats do indeed take control. I mean, look, it's it's not it. Yeah, you want to be in power, but you can do a lot from um, the minority position. You can make a lot of noise and make a lot of trouble and nothing sticks to you because you don't at the end of the day have the power to do anything. So, Alex, if you're if you're a Republican senator um, thinking about, you know, that kind of a world, I mean, if you're a Ted Cruz or you're a, I don't know, um, let's, you're Mitch McConnell. Like, how are you going to, how are you going to operate your caucus in, in that kind of Washington? I mean, to, to add on to what Caitlin was saying, it's likely that, whoever takes is in charge in the Senate, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, it's going to be very, very close and possibly, probably closer than it is right now. So that, I mean, that's interesting, not just for Republicans, but every single senator has an enormous role to play when their vote is, everything hangs on every single vote. Um, Unless, of course, all the rules are blown up and that's not the case, but under the current rules. Um, and also, you know, in Washington, like as uh, my husband's old boss used to say, there are no permanent defeats and no permanent victories. Um, there's another election in a couple of years. So, I mean, Democrats can, if they were in charge in the Senate and want to do very liberal things, very progressive things, you know, like, that could affect what happens next time around. So I think Republicans, you know, have a lot of experience now playing defense, particularly on Obamacare for a very long time, uh, but they could do that in a lot of other areas too. And I'm sure they would. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to, as I said, throw stones when you're not responsible for the end result. No, but Alex and Caitlin make an exceptionally important point with or without the filibuster uh, in a 50, 50 Senate, it, it is going to be very very critical to hold each caucus together. It's going to empower each and every member. President Manchin. Because neither side, right, neither side will be able to lose one, even one vote. So that could get uh, that could get very interesting. Even with 
the filibuster in place, which uh, just for the record, uh, I, I am personally in favor of. Uh, you do have the reconciliation process. We all know that brought us the Affordable Care Act. And, but the, and the 2017 Tax, tax cuts, cuts and Jobs and, Act. Uh, yes, correct, correct. But again, in a 50-50 Congress, even reconciliation becomes something that empowers all 50 members of each caucus. I mean, look, our government, <laughs> despite all the current chaos, and the poor state of the country, as long as the system holds, and it's scary to me to even utter those words, but I think you have to utter them now. As long as the system holds, it's set up to create moderation. And it, it, that's, that's the way the founders set this government up. And one way or another, we kind of revert to the mean and, and that'll happen again. I, I, you know, checks and balances. Yeah. Checks and balances. And I think that, that raises an interesting question. Well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, I'm Mark. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, as you and I discussed uh, at length over the weekend, uh, it, it, it's hard to know exactly where the country is, though, where you say it reverts to the center. But whether the center has moved right or left, we're going to know more about where the center is after this election. Yeah, but what I mean is that it it reverts to um, moderation, that it the system- well, that's what the Senate, that's what the constitutional authority of the Senate uh, was intended to do and and does in fact do but that doesn't mean that's where the center is because right. in a body where uh, Wyoming and California have the same representation you you are not necessarily reverting to the political center you're just reverting to the center of that body well that's why we have the house mark so mark to that, <laughs> that was the theory to that end how is Biden going to manage, Patrick, let me kick this to you, all of the different constituencies within the huge tent that is the Democratic Party? Very carefully. Uh, <laughs> it is going to be certainly one of his biggest challenges in addition to all the other uh, global and domestic things he's going to have to face. But yeah, I mean, I... I been saying to, to you, uh, Howard and Mark, all the time that, you know, if the Democratic Party uh, wants to blow up the filibuster and pack the court, they probably nominated the wrong guy to be leading their ticket uh, to be elected president. You know, Joe Biden served in Congress since, uh, you know, I think he got elected when he was 29 to the, to the U.S. Senate and was sworn in, uh, you know, after he turned 30. But uh he has been around a long time. He has built his entire career around the institutions of government uh, that we were just talking about earlier. And so for him to sort of say, yes, we should throw all that away, is just sort of inconceivable to me. However, he recognizes there is a lot of anger uh, within the Democratic Party uh, and within Congress, and particularly the U.S. Senate, after how everything's happened uh, with the Supreme Court seat, that he is going to have to deal with that. And he's going to have Pelosi and Schumer telling him, listen, this is what I'm hearing from my caucus. This is where we're at. And I'm going to need your help 
to communicate to these members about how we don't walk all the way down down that path. But it is going to be a tremendous challenge for him. Um, and frankly, the, the, the personal part of it is Joe Biden came of age in a Washington that doesn't exist anymore. And and that is going to really in a world that in a world exists anymore. in a world that doesn't exist yeah, as anymore, as right. we've discussed on the cannabis issue, for example. That's right. So that it, it will uh, to directly answer your question, Howard. It will be a tremendous challenge for him, and one that probably makes or breaks his presidency. When you step back, uh, Howard, Caitlin, and and you realize that this is an election uh, coming up hard in in six days between two guys who grew up in a world that doesn't exist anymore. I believe one of them has evolved better than the other, but it is extraordinary that the country is choosing between two candidates who do not look like the country, who did not grow up in the country that we are today, who are- What does that mean? Like, sorry, go ahead. Just from a different time and place. If this is the last election with two major candidates who are baby boomers, you will see no tears from Caitlin or I or anyone <laughs> no else tears. our age. This this melodrama can come to an end anytime. <laughs> two old white men on stage. I think I think America is ready for uh, something new in, in four years. Well, we did add Senator Harris, Caitlin. Uh, you can true. have three old white men and and Kamala. Um. So. I say that proudly as an older white guy, by the way. <laughs> so, I'm not um, including you, Howard, in that in that category. You. So here, here's a question. Um, what what doesn't change in a Biden administration? What remains the same? You know, uh, people look at Washington and they think it, it's they always think it's crazy town, but they think it's, you know, it's all. Trump all the time. And that's all they see on the, you know, on the headlines and the 24 hour news channels. But what Here's doesn't what, change? What doesn't change? May I go first? You may. Kevin, grab you may. the microphone. <laughs> I sound like Ronald Reagan saying to uh, George Bush, I paid for this microphone. But here's what doesn't change, Howard. And we've talked about this. Actually, uh, I paid for the microphone, a lot, but go uh, ahead. Fair enough. Thank you for letting me go first. Yeah. Um, what doesn't change is the imperial presidency. The, the most fundamental political fact, institutional fact of the last 50 or more years, 75 years, has been the increasing strength of the presidency and the relative diminution of congressional authority, even over matters that the Constitution assigns. To, to the Congress. This has been uh, 75 years of Article 2, more than Article 3 or Article 1. Yeah. And that will not change. That didn't change from Bush to Obama to Trump. It will and it will not change in, in a Biden administration either. Yeah, I think as we as we talked about over the weekend, um, there are foreign policy areas where I think Biden's going to pick up where Trump left off, the Middle East being top of the list. I don't think he's going backwards. I think he's going to continue to promote this um, group of countries that are anti-Iran 
and try to continue to forge peace with Israel and um, pick up where Trump has left off. I, you know, below the level of the headlines. Yeah. I would say most things don't change. One, I mean, one big thing that won't change yeah. is the, the dysfunction. And I'm not talking about the sideshow and Howard, what you just said, the headlines. I mean, maybe things feel a little steadier when you don't have just an everyday complete craziness on television and just sort of the way Trump is. But the dysfunction that governs our current politics today remains the massive amounts of money that are spent yeah. that caught that on the that, fringes on the fringes that cause the the politicians to be motivated by the most extreme elements of that that all stays the same and until we address some of those core fundamental challenges it's it's just going to be a new cast of characters in the same old play yeah i mean i could rattle off 20 different issues that the four of us are working on, the five of us are working on right now on behalf of clients that, yeah, like philosophically and in terms of the personnel, things will, will definitely change the politicals in the seats, but you have the bureaucracy, they stay and they remain involved in things. And it's not like the policy shifts, I guess, from issue to issue kind of below the level of the headlines aren't going to going to be as radical as I think people would think from the outside. I well, totally agree. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I don't totally agree, but I think it depends on that Senate majority there. Yeah. Well, no, because yeah, uh, no, because in the executive branch things, they don't care what the Senate thinks minute to no, minute. No, but here, here's an example. And again, Howard, we, did, we discussed this over the weekend. Um, climate. The policies that will be pursued on climate by a Biden-Harris administration are going to be a tremendous change from a Trump-Pence administration. Right. Now, That's maybe at the, the level of the headlines. Well, okay. It's at the level of the substance and the content. What is interesting is that the country is probably more ready for that than the Republican Party is. No, I think it polls well on both sides of the aisle at this point. And the Republican Party is moving uh, in that direction itself. Actually, I also Trump isn't, but the Republican Party. Well, that's Party, what I'm saying. What there there will be tremendous changes from Trump to Biden. Those changes may not be as as radical with the Republican but, rank and file. But Mark, what I'm saying is not everything is climate change. No, no, and so, most things. COVID and climate are one and two. One and two, and they are. Huge, and that is where the headlines will be focused in a Biden administration, rightly so. But there are a bazillion other things that happen yep. that people don't see. And my point is they they don't change the approach doesn't change radically from right. one administration to the next. The thing that having gone through this now on on the outside um, from Obama from Obama to Trump, is you really have to know who's in what seats. It's all about who's in what seats. And at the very beginning of an administration, 
it's chaotic. You've got these beachhead teams that land in the agencies, these so-called beachhead teams, they come in and they're kind of the first group. They're the first wave in trying to wrap their arms around what's going on and what's at the top of the agency's agenda. And, and then they slowly filter out and more permanent politicals come in initially back on the inside. It was always funny because the first people in on behalf of the administration were people in off the campaign trail. Yeah. And quite honestly, they're, they're not taken super seriously. Um, they're not, you know, they're not there for the long haul and the people that were out working on the camp coming in off the campaign, they're, they're not serious policy people. And they're just, they're not taken, they're not really given the reins and they're not taken that seriously. And then they filter out and the real policy people come in. That takes a couple of months and there's a lot happening in those couple of months. And so, and Caitlin, something, you know, we've become very good at is who's in what seats. We use all our information resources and, and poll. And in real time, we're figuring out who's in what seats, who's coming and going and making sense of it. And that's how you move the needle in the early days of an administration. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's very interesting. So, um, well, how many days, Mark? Six days. Six days, soon to be five. <laughs> soon to be five. Uh, In six any, hours, it'll be five. Patrick, we're going to give you the last word. Any uh, any clothing, closing thoughts on, on, on Biden 1.0? I think, you know, if Vice President Biden wins, I think there's going to be a lot of people across the country that just breathe a sigh of relief. I don't think there is a massive degree of excitement about, you know, the way there was in 2008. Joe Biden is not a transformational political figure. He is a reset to some sort of normalcy that we all sort of hope will come back as soon as humanly possible. And so I think you will see a very sobering kind of feeling uh, amongst Joe Biden, amongst the people around him that, uh, this national nightmare has come to an end and we can hopefully take the next step toward resetting our democratic institutions to be a little more uh, reliable and, and lawful. So that's what I'm sort of looking for next week. If, if the vice president wins, which I think he will, um, just a sober approach to the transition and yeah. to, to starting a new government. And it's, it's all about COVID, Mark. I said I'd give Patrick the last word, but I lied. It's it's all about COVID coming out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, he's got a, he, he already said he has a war cabinet in waiting. Yeah. You know, whatever that means. It's, it's all, it, he's going to own the virus if he wins on, on January 20th. And it's all about, it's all about getting it under control and moving the country forward. He may be lucky in terms of the timing of a vaccine. If in fact, you know, we're lucky enough to get there. Um, he, he could get lucky, but it, Mark, it's all about COVID. First uh, three priorities are COVID, then COVID, and third, COVID. Yeah. It, Howard, right. interestingly enough, I'll just add one final thought. Uh, you know, just sometimes things stay the same, and 
this new administration could be entering amidst a massive crisis. And the first thing out of the gate they'll have to do is pass a huge stimulus rescue bill. And then if the Supreme Court strikes down the Affordable Care Act, it will be followed up by having to deal with health care reform. And it might feel like we're in 2009 all over again. 3.0. Crazy. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks all. Great discussion as always. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back this weekend. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.